Home is where you feel safe. For me, home is a uh, family. Number one, uh, my parents. Let me be specific. Home is uh, a sense of belonging to a land, a country, uh, to people, to community. Home is where I feel safe, loved, and cared for. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, your weekly Lent and Easter podcast on refugee welcome in the Episcopal Church and across the United States. I'm Kendall Martin. And I'm Allison Duval. Welcome to episode 14. Hometown is a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries, the Refugee Resettlement and Welcome Ministry of the Episcopal Church. Learn more about our work on our website, EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org, and Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we are EMM Refugees. This podcast is part of the Good Book Club Initiative, which invites all Episcopalians to come together and read Luke and Acts throughout Lent and Easter 2018. You can find the daily readings, resources, and much more at goodbookclub.org and find them on Facebook at The Good Book Club. The Good Book Club readings for this week are Acts 21:27 through Acts 27:12. This week's reflection comes from the Reverend Canon Dr. Michael Barlow, Executive Officer of General Convention and Secretary of the Domestic and Foreign Missionary Society. The Reverend Canon Michael Barlow was appointed Executive Officer of the General Convention of the Episcopal Church in December 2012 by Presiding Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey and the Reverend Gay Clark Jennings, President of the House of Deputies. Canon Barlow, who was the Diocese of California's Canon to the Ordinary from 2006 to 2012, was before his appointment as Executive Officer, an elected member of Executive Council, and a Deputy to General Convention from the Diocese of California. We hope you enjoy this week's reflection. Wow! This section of the Acts of the Apostles is fast-paced enough for a remake of Indiana Jones. St. Paul seems to be in constant motion, moving from one place to another, encountering one challenge after another. And, with the characteristic aplomb that Luke ascribes to Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles talks his way out of one tight spot after another. All it lacks is a new Harrison Ford, and the cameras would be ready to roll. And like a lot of adventures, much trouble could have been avoided had St. Paul not been so headstrong. As you may recall, at the beginning of chapter 21, Paul was warned by the prophet prophet Agabus, no less, that he should avoid tangling with the Jerusalem authorities. Thus says the Holy Spirit, declared Agabus, who then went on to perform a little pantomime to show what would happen to Paul if he persisted. Suffice it to say that Paul paid no attention at all to Agabus, nor to anyone else. He was on a mission from God, and nothing was going to get in his way. Of course, it helped a lot that St. Paul was a person of privilege, learned in the law and with enough financial means and acumen to accomplish what he wanted. And to top it all, he had won the birth lottery of his time. He was born a citizen of the Roman Empire, together with all the courtesies, advantages, and privileges that exalted status afforded. 
This part of the book of Acts is essentially the story of Paul using that privilege to preach to ever grander audiences, from Caesarea to Jerusalem to Rome, to religious authorities, to civil authorities, from tribunes to governors such as Felix and Festus, to King Agrippa and Bernice, and eventually, as we will see, to the court of the emperor himself. Paul was a person of privilege, and he used that privilege not for his own aggrandizement, but in service to the good news of Jesus Christ. In considering these chapters from the Acts of the Apostles, reflecting on them in light of our call as Christians to welcome the stranger and to be active in the movement for immigrant and refugee welcome, I found myself coming back to the small vignette in Acts 22, verses 26 through 28. The tribune came and asked Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. The tribune answered, It cost me a large amount of money to get my citizenship. But Paul said, I was born a citizen. Immigrants and refugees come to our country, often at great peril and at a great cost, financially and otherwise, to themselves, their families, and their communities. They are the strangers we are called to welcome. And for those of us who are privileged in so many ways, including having the advantages of, quote, being born a citizen like St. Paul, we can learn from his example. Paul could simply have enjoyed the benefits of his privilege, but instead he put that privilege at the service of the gospel. How might we put the privilege we have at the service of the good news, and particularly in service to welcoming the stranger? It could include refusing to be, in, to, refusing to be silent, using our voices and rights, the rights that we have, to give voice to the voiceless, standing up against unjust laws and actions. It could include giving our time, talent, and treasure to the work of the Church's Episcopal Migration Ministries. It could include local actions, volunteering, and giving a helping hand to the stranger wherever we encounter these new neighbors. It certainly should include praying for and working with others who are actively engaged in such important ministries. St. Paul was a restless soul, unwilling to rest placidly while the call of the good news of Jesus beckoned. In the final chapters of this week's readings, Paul has even faced exile and shipwreck and near starvation, all in pursuit of that call. The readings end with these simple words. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. May we have such courage and determination as we welcome immigrants and refugees in our own time from our places of privilege and so proclaim the gospel. 
So I really love in Canon Barlow's reflection how he touched on how we have to really use our privilege, how we have to put the privilege that we have at, at the service of the good news, as he says, um, and particularly to welcoming the stranger. And I like how he talks about how we use that privilege, right? How mm. using that privilege means that we refuse to be silent, that we're giving voice to the voiceless and we're using the rights that we have to speak for those who don't have a voice. Um, mm. I think that's really powerful. And I think about that a lot when it comes to refugee and immigrant rights. Mm -hmm. um, we have privilege as citizens of this country. You know, we have the right to vote and we have freedom of speech and we have the ability to speak up for what's right and to vote for what we believe in. And I think that we have a responsibility to use that privilege for good. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just really love how Canon Barlow speaks to that. What, what was your response to his reflection? I think much along the same lines, but I'm, I'm thinking about the, the idea that each person kind of exists on different spectrum, spectrums of power and privilege um, in different ways, in different times, in different places, that privilege, isn't, privilege and power aren't really static things and how we navigate that. I think the first thing that all of us have to do is just develop an awareness of how we exist within different spaces at different times. And when it's incumbent upon us, you know, when it's when it's our responsibility and our obligation as Christians and as people of faith to create space for others to also have a voice, like you said. So I think your reflection on what Canon Barlow said, Kendall, is beautiful. We all have to figure out, like, what what is our power and privilege in certain situations and how do we use that for good? Listeners, this week we bring you an interview with Betsy Ashton, a portrait artist based in New York City. Betsy has had an interesting career both in and out of the art world, and last year decided to stop taking commissioned portrait jobs so she could focus on telling the stories of immigrants and refugees through her work. The first 10 of these portraits that make up Betsy's exhibit, Portraits of Immigrants, Unknown Faces, Untold Stories, opens May 17th in New York City as part of the Long Island City Arts Open Festival. The first full exhibition of all 18 Portraits of Immigrants will open at St. Thomas Church, 5th Avenue next January, and then the exhibition is going on the road. Listen to the interview for more information on how you can bring the exhibition to your church or organization. Without further ado, please enjoy our interview with Betsy. We are so excited today to have Betsy Ashton with us. 11 years ago, Betsy Ashton returned to the art career that she'd abandoned in 1971 when she took a long detour into television news. Three credits shy of a Master of Fine Arts degree in painting from the American University in Washington, DC, she was an illustrator, artist, and art teacher who sold many pen and ink, charcoal, and acrylic portraits before creating a program in which she taught art on a local television program and was tapped to do radio reports on the emerging women's movement. This quickly led to her reporting and anchoring radio and television news for nearly two decades in Washington, D.C., and later at CBS News in New York City. While covering the courts for WJLA-TV in Washington, she became the only TV reporter ever to draw her own courtroom sketches while covering trials, which aired daily on television and were exhibited at the Jane Haslam Gallery. Betsy resumed painting in November 2006 at the urging of renowned painter Everett Raymond Kensler, N.A., whose workshop she attended at the National Academy School of Fine Arts and the Art Students League. Her portraits are now in public and private collections throughout the United States, Italy, and the United Kingdom, including the collection of the U.S. Embassy in London. 
Betsy stopped taking commissions from the rich and accomplished one year ago in order to paint a series of portraits of immigrants. The first exhibition of 10 of these new portraits opens May 17th in New York City as part of the Long Island City Arts Open Festival. The first full exhibition of all 18 portraits of immigrants will open at St. Thomas Church, Fifth Avenue next January, and then the exhibition will go on the road. Thank you for joining us, Betsy. My pleasure to be with you. I should tell you, there's also now going to be an exhibit in Indianapolis at Christ Church Cathedral. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, opening October the 5th, uh, and that'll run through November the 6th. So we're going on the road already. Hopefully it'll go on the road continually then after the big exhibition exhibition in uh, St. Thomas Church next winter. That's the one that'll have all 18 portraits. I'm not finished yet. I'm still <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do. I've got more stories to write and uh, I'm trying to do one a month. Uh, that's pushing it, but I'm doing it. For sure. Well, and we're so glad to have you here, Betsy, to, um, to share your work with our listening audience. Um, and I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your return to being a portrait artist and what you love about this medium. My life has not been planned. You have to understand that, you know, I, um, I was getting the art degree and I left it because the art world at that time seemed to be totally interested in Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko and throwing balloons of paint at the wall. And I, I did one summer, I had to work with a Washington color painter who loved stripes. And I had to paint stripes the whole summer. Now, I don't have anything against stripes but I just couldn't imagine me doing that for the rest of my life or doing, you know, saying red is it, you know, I'm, it's not me. I've always been interested in people, always wanted to do people and wanted to paint people as well as interview people and what people do and what motivates them has always interested me. But the real problem was I saw that I'd be beating my head up against the wall if I went into art at that time, it just wasn't going where I wanted to go. So as luck would have it, the women's movement came along and I had been a debater in high school. Women didn't do, women didn't go into radio and television in those days. And I became, uh, luckily through a, a long funny story, but uh, became the first woman on a major radio station in Washington DC and one thing led to another and then I wound up doing television and all of that. And it, it was a good 20 year run, it wound up bringing me to New York City, and I loved it. And as you mentioned, the only time it all came together was when I was covering trials and covering the courts, and I actually did my own courtroom sketches. But I then wound up giving it up. I got married, and I decided that I ought to pay a little bit of attention to the husband instead of just working all the time, which is what I was doing. And since he was older and he retired as a corporate executive, he felt that we should retire. And so I left the television news business. I was over 40 at that point, And I went off and did other things. But then what happened, um, life intrudes sometimes. And 20 years later, he dumped me. And because of that, all of a sudden, I had to restart my entire life. Wow. I, instead of taking care of his plantation, he had one, I had to go back and say, oh my, what am I going to do? And by the way, I needed to earn some money. I did not wind up. But you know what? When you're 62, you can't go back to a career in television that you've been out of for 20 years. There, You may have noticed they're not hiring people that age, particularly women. So what 
I did, I had to rethink what is it that I can do? And it wouldn't hurt if I could earn some money doing it. And I thought about the art and I knew I had met some people. I met a wonderful, wonderful painter, Everett Raymond Kinsler. He's one of the grandmasters of portraiture uh, and other painting, but portraiture particularly here in New York, very well known. And I ran into him and he knew that I had, uh, he knew that I had painted. He said, Betsy, how are you? I was at one of his unveilings. I said, oh, I think I better tell you I'm in divorce court. And he said, oh no, that's terrible. I've been through that. But here, give me a call because I married this new wonderful woman and we'll get you through this. I said, don't say that unless you mean it because I think I want to do what you do, but only if you'll be my mentor because you're, you're, you're the best. Well, lo and behold, he took me on and he gave me wonderful guidance. I went to his workshops and it brought me back to painting, but now in New York, not Washington where I was in the early days, I was in a place and I was known from television and I had the social connections also through, and it, I, it, I was in a nice position to actually use all of this and have a career painting people and getting paid for it, doing commission portrait work. And I started doing it. I did it in oils this time. I love oil paint. Oil paint is wonderfully forgiving. If you make a mess, you can wipe it out. You know, John Singer Sargent, <laughs> he would do things and scrape it out 17 times and the sitter would keep coming back and coming back. Oil is very forgiving, but it's also, it's luscious. The colors are wonderful. And as long as you wear, um, wear I wear surgeon's gloves, so that you don't have to deal with the cadmiums and the, and the flake white, the lead that's there. It's, it's just wonderful to paint. And I enjoy working with people. I've always had fun doing it. And, uh, and I had no trouble making money at it, good money, and getting my work around the country and abroad. And all of that happened until the last election. I was in church. And I had been angered about all of the bad nothing of immigrants that I was hearing coming out of one particular candidate who ultimately won the election. And I just, I said, this is, this is wrong. It's not what the gospel tells us. It is not what people, what the Lord has said about meeting people, welcoming strangers, being kind to refugees and helping people in need. I mean, Jesus was there for all of the people who were outcasts. And he was a refugee himself with the Holy Family, you know, fleeing Herod when he was a baby. At any rate, I said, this, this is just wrong. It goes to my core and upsets me. And then the other, I started thinking, well, I have some abilities with communications. And how about if I used my art to do some good? Because here I live in New York City. And I live in a section of New York City now called Queens, Long Island City. It's literally right across the 59th Street Bridge from Bloomingdale's. And, and most of it is across from the United Nations, just, just across the East River. And it's filled with immigrants from all over the world. Brooklyn and Queens are filled with immigrants. I see immigrants all the time, or the children of immigrants. Many of them live in my building. And guess what? They're really good neighbors, really good neighbors. And I'm saying, this, this is not the true story. What we are hearing from this man is like saying a plane crash. This is my favorite analogy. A plane crash. Okay, I was a news reporter. We covered plane crashes. It's terrible. People die. It's awful. It makes the news. 
but we don't ground all the planes. Why? Because we know eight million people landed safely that day and the day before and the day before and the day before that. It's going to go on the same way for the next month, maybe even a year. Well, that's the story as I see it of the immigrants. All of this talk about murderers and rapists and a few drug dealers is a teeny, teeny, tiny percentage of the immigrants who are in this country. And most of them are really wonderful people who become very good citizens. And I said, I'm just going to have to do something about telling that story. And the first thing I was going to do is just go out and paint some of the people that I know, that I see, that I deal with. The first one I did, of course, was the guy who's the manager and the chef at the little espresso bar that I walk into every morning on my way from my home into my studio. And he's wonderful. He's from Brazil. His family, he's an Italian background, but he was raised, born and raised in Brazil. And his family owned a little couple pizza parlors there. And what happened? They were, um, it was a very dangerous time in Sao Paulo, Brazil. They were getting robbed repeatedly. The last, a third of the robberies was a bloody mess, very bad. And his parents said they couldn't take it anymore. They folded up the businesses and they moved off into the safer countryside. But he was a young man. He needed to work. And so he said, no, I wonder if I can get a job as a pizza man. And so he put it out on the internet and he wound up being called by a company up in suburban New York and um, came here and he has had a glorious career because he's terribly talented. He wanted to get out of the suburbs, got a job in the city by, with a coffee importer, started setting up espresso bars for this fellow in five of them in New York City, another in Miami. Unfortunately, they didn't survive the, uh, the big recession. But he came back because one of the people that was a customer there said, ah, I have a building. Come and open an espresso bar in my building, which happened to be in Long Island City. And guess what? That's where I get my cappuccino every morning. I mean, these are the kinds of people. Some of them are just wonderfully ordinary stories. He's a citizen now. And some of them are the things that these people have endured, the reasons that they've come here. This is why I'm telling the stories in addition to painting the pictures. I like capturing personality and character in the paintings, but these stories are what worth telling too. So each painting in this exhibition has a storyboard next to it. And it has, a, it tells you who these people are, why they came here, what it was like, what kind of struggles they had to endure when they get here, as well as what their life has been like since, what they've accomplished since they've been here and what they think about the whole business and particularly about what's being said about, about them now. In addition to painting the portraits, you're also gathering a story. So I'm curious if there have been some stories that have been particularly moving to you or have been your favorite stories with that. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. One that I will tell you about, you know, we hear about all of these people there that are coming across the Rio Grande and coming through the desert and breaking in through the southern border the Mexicans and people from Central and South America. And that's the ones, oh, they're all criminals. Well, technically, they are illegally getting into the country, yes. But I decided to find out what would make someone do that. And I found someone who did it. And her name is Maria Salome. Salome is her middle name. At first, she didn't give me her last name, and I still don't know it, uh, because she was not documented at the time that I started interviewing and painting her. What happened to her? She's from uh, Guatemala. 
and her husband just deserted her, leaving her with their five children, ages three to 18 at the time. And she went immediately to get work, to get a job, but she was not trained as anything. She was a typical Guatemalan woman with no, no great education. And so she got a job as a laundress, doing people's laundry, but it didn't even pay enough to feed the kids. And she said through a Spanish interpreter who happened to be her employer here, she said they were malnourished. The children were starving and she had to do something about it. And she didn't have time to go through a lot of paperwork, to do all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, she probably would not have been a candidate, you know, as a leading citizen to get into this country with a great education and all of that. So her choice was this, she could become a prostitute that would make money in Guatemala, or she could leave the country and try to get into the United States and send money back, leaving the kids there in the care of relative. That's what she did. She said, indecent work, never, 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 not going to do that. So she got a coyote, one of these human traffickers, to get her through Mexico, across the Rio Grande at night, through, they walked for two days. She wouldn't tell me too much about that. She just said, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. But other Mexicans have told me that a woman traveling alone in those situations can better pack her contraceptivos because she's going to be raped. And one of the women said, you know, after 50 times I stopped counting. This was the way it was. She won't talk about that. And she only says it was bad. It was bad. But at two o'clock in the morning, after walking for two days, they came to a, an intersection on a highway and a bus came to pick them up. She made it to New York City. And she wound up in a Guatemalan community in New York City where the men were working in construction and they were working on, a, they had gutted a townhouse uh, in Long Island City. And the townhouse, they had been putting it back together again. And the owner said, oh, it's so dirty. It's miserable. We need somebody to come in and clean this up. You know, the debris and all the dust. And the Guatemalan said, ah, we know somebody. And it helped that this owner spoke Spanish. And they bring Maria Salome. And they brought her in. And she cleaned it up. And the owner said, she was, it was wonderful. She did a fabulous job. Well, she has since become the beloved housekeeper of the couple that owned the place. Now... Four years later, she said to them, I have to leave. I have to go back home. I have to leave. The children have gone wild. Wild? Well, the oldest one at this point, 21, had sold the dining room furniture to buy clothes. The twin boys, now 15 or 16, they had fungus all over their feet. And then there were younger ones. And she said, I, you know, she had to go. Had to let her go. She had to go back the same way she came. She got there. She got them all cleaned up. She got everything organized. And four months later, there was no money again. There was no way to take care of them because she didn't have a job. She couldn't, there was no way again of getting a job that would pay anything. So she said, I have to go back. I have to go back to the States this, uh, you'll, or you will starve again. This time her little boy was now six and he grabbed her around the leg and he said, mommy, 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 please take me. So this time she brought the little one with her on that horrible journey, but they got back and she got the little boy in school. The owners of the townhouse were thrilled to have her back, and she continued to send monthly payments back to Guatemala to take care of her other four children growing up. Oh, by this time, she had made sure that an aunt 
was living with them so that the kids were not going to go wild again. Well, 20 years later, I'm painting her 20 years later and had interviewed her with an interpreter and I'm painting her. And she very proudly says that on her off time, she's a lay preacher in an evangelical church. And she has a wide community of friends through the church. And she has saved money, not only supporting the kids in Guatemala, and she has her own little apartment where she and the little boy had lived. She has saved money enough to pay a good lawyer to get her her papers. And her papers came through right after I finished the portrait. And she got on a plane and flew to Guatemala to legally, because she can get back in the country, to legally hug and touch her children that she had not seen in 20 years and hold grandchildren she had never seen. That I, I just don't think most of us can imagine anything like that. I have interviewed others, uh, one of the undocumented women from Mexico who is still undocumented, who we simply call Angel. I interviewed her, and she's even a college graduate. She came here on a tourist visa with her two little boys and her husband. They weren't gonna stay that long, but they overstayed their visa like most most undocumented immigrants have been doing. It's never been enforced for years and years and years. And But they weren't gonna stay more than a couple of years until they discovered that their boys, their little boys would have so much more opportunity here than they would back in Mexico. And so she stayed, but this is a woman who, criminal? Well, she was vice president of the PTA of her kid's school. And then when the little boys grew up and graduated with very good honors from Catholic schools here, then she managed to help found an organization and run an organization that teaches literacy skills to other immigrants, numbers and writing, because some of the women who come from towns and villages in Central America and even in Mexico, unlike her, she, she grew up in Mexico City, but some of the ones out in the hinterlands, the girls are never given even an elementary education. They are told, oh, well, you're a girl, you just stay home, you clean, you cook, you help your mother with kids, that's it, that's all you do. And so some of them speaking dialects, they come up here and they, they cannot read, even in Spanish. So living in a Spanish community, they're lost. And it's, it's just a challenge. And she's dedicated her life to helping them. I said, what will happen if you get deported? She says, I'll go to, I'll go to Mexico and I will help them. I said, what about your boys? One of them's in DACA. One of them did not sign up for that. And she said, well, they won't go to Mexico. They have nothing. They say Mexico means nothing to them. One says he'll go to Canada. And the other one, he doesn't know where he's going to go. But that's the way it is. And she, tears came down. She says, you know, she says, it's very hard. This is very hard because my mother got sick and died. My father got sick and died. She says, there's a price you pay for this. But they were doing it for their children. These are incredible stories. On the other hand, another one that I have, from Hong Kong, a little boy comes over here brought by his parents and his seven younger brothers and sisters all arrive at the same time. There's seven children uh, and the parents. And they come here and pile in on, in the house of an aunt who happens to live in Long Island, suburban Long Island. Now, that's family chain migration. And he says, boy, it was, it was a real tight squeeze. It was incredible. Um, and I, I realized he was a young teen. I realized right then and there that I wasn't going to get to go to high school. 
I had to go out and work to support my parents and my youngest brothers and sisters. And so that's what he did. His first job was he went into a Chinese restaurant, walked in the back and said, do you need help? And he was washing dishes in a Chinese restaurant. And it smart kid, he realized very quickly that that was no way to get ahead in America. So he says to his relatives who live here, how do you get money in this country? How do you do that? And they said, well, you could go into finance. Oh, he's not trained for that. Or you could be in the arts. Um, I'm not an artist. I don't know anything about that. Well, there's real estate. I don't have any money. I can't do that. Well, then there was the garment industry. Ah, he had worked as a kid in Hong Kong making handbags. So he knew about manufacturing. So he goes into Chinatown, discovers very quickly, not only doesn't he speak English, but they speak Taishanese. They don't speak the Cantonese that he speaks. He can't understand anything. He gets in there. He's supposed to show up at a garment factory somewhere in Chinatown. He can't find it. He, so the interview, he misses the interview, but he's smart enough. He just walks around the streets until he sees some people pushing garments in the racks as they do outside, getting him into trucks, finds another factory, goes in, kind of, he's got a charming personality and with his hands and everything, he makes his way looking for work. They put him to work, hanging up coats on racks. And that's his first big break. Oh, he gives all the money to his mother. She gives him $15 a week as spending money. This is what he's living on. He says everything he knew, he had to work, 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 work. He certainly couldn't even think about getting married. He couldn't think about women. He couldn't think about anything because he had to help support his family. And then he finds out, he studies the business, studies it really hard, looks at it, learns every job that he sees on the floor. He stays late one night. He takes apart a sewing machine and puts it back together learns how to do it so that when anything goes wrong, he's the one who can fix everything. So the first time that the supervisor takes off or is sick or whatever, he's like, I can help, I can help. And everybody knows he can help. Everybody knows that he knows everything else. So he soon becomes the supervisor, then he becomes the manager and everybody loves him. He's just got a wonderful way with people. Well, it, meanwhile, he started, once his English got passable, he starts working nights as a waiter in a Chinese restaurant and that money he saves. And then when he finds out that the owners of the factory want to get rid of it, he's got his savings and he goes to a sister who's married and some friends in the community who now trust him and he gathers, scrapes together enough money and he buys the business. Fast forward a few years, the garment industry leaves. He quickly discovers there are other things. And by this point, he learns about the hotel industry and he learns about building and construction. And the next thing you know, he is building hotels and he... He's built 30 of them, all in and around New York City. He has also got 11, uh, 11 hotels that his people operate, the hotel in the hotel and hospitality industry. He employs thousands of people. Immigrants all take jobs away from us? I don't think so. And by the way, I'm also in this exhibition. There is a wonderful group called New American Economy that is studying the impact of immigration. You probably have, you probably know about them. And I've been in touch with their executive director. And I said, listen, I want the latest facts that you've got. I want to know who the immigrants are. And as we go to different communities, I even want a local, I want to know the local facts. Well, they've been giving me the incredible stats. And I'm just going to have a big freestanding panel that's going to say, I mean, you'll get all the emotion and the stories as you see these paintings and read the individual stories. But this is gonna say, here are a few surprising facts that you probably don't know about immigration. So that people can get a little bit of a, you know, 
get to know what some of the reality is. That's kind of what I'm doing, and I'm, I'm hoping to get it out there. I'm hoping that we'll get some attention. We hope it will, too. And as I listen to you through these amazing stories, I'm, I, I would love to hear you talk about what surprised you in this process, because you came at this with you know, this feeling that you had to respond in some way. You had to put something out into the world that would tell the truth about the stories of people who are our neighbors. How have you been changed or affected by all this work? Well, aside from going broke to do this, nobody's paying me to do this. Uh, aside from not having the income that I normally would have, I, I have to do this. I, you know, sometimes you feel the Lord really wants you to do something, mm -hmm. and I feel I have to do this. I am concerned because it's going to cost money to transport this exhibition out, and I don't have the money to do that. So the venues, the people that, that are interested in having the exhibitions are going to have to come up with money. And there are a lot of places that are interested that have told me um, some of them don't have the money. So I'm hoping that I can find some donors. And the good news is that the, um, an arts organization, an arts service organization called Fractured Atlas, wonderful name, fracturedatlas.org, is fiscal sponsor of Portraits of Immigrants. Thank God, because that means that businesses or organizations, foundations, or even individuals can donate to Portraits of Immigrants by donating through fracturedatlas.org. And they can even do it online, and all they have to do is go to fracturedatlas.org and go to the Portraits of Immigrants page, and the, the link is right there. And, and so this is possible, and hopefully if we get enough donations, We'll be able to send the exhibition around to smaller churches and smaller schools and smaller places that couldn't possibly afford to pay an exhibition fee or to pay for the transportation and all of the stuff that is there. The exhibition fee pay helps me to try to pay for some of my expenses. But <clears throat> aside from the finances, I have been touched by the people. We, get, we all get in our own little comfortable cocoons and we all live in a certain lifestyle and our friends live in a certain lifestyle and you look at other people's lives and realize what they have gone through what some of them have done and how easy we have it when you're talking about somebody's starving children it is just so important to pay attention to have heart to hear What's going on in the world? I, I think of the Syrian refugees right now. It is, I, and I get very upset because all of these people that we were helping, the ones that were the rebels in Syria, are, are being abandoned. The Kurds who have been wonderful, our, our military people said they were the best fighters and, and so helpful in Iraq. Well, they're being decimated by Turkey. And these are families, these are people. They were the doctors and the lawyers and the pharmacists and the teachers and the everything in a community that functioned. And once that community is torn apart, the suffering is unbelievable. I want the American people to have, have a bigger heart and a bigger understanding because what I'm seeing is that the immigrants and the refugees who've been here turn into really as I said, good neighbors, good citizens. Many of them, they're excited to become citizens. They want to vote. They want to take part. They want 
They like what America stands for, at least what we, we thought it stood for growing up. They like the Declaration of Independence. And some of them, when they go through that process of uh, being naturalized citizens, they know more about this country than a lot of our kids that are in school today. It's just deeply touching. And I pray a lot. I pray a lot for these people. I wish I could do more. And how many people are left for you to paint for this series? Well, I'm, I'm starting the 10th one, and I'm going to do eight more. And people say, why 18? Well, that's because my art friends who uh, tell me that in order to have a solo exhibition, that's about the amount of bo a body of work that you really need. So I just took that out of, from the art world. 18, and then I figured out if I do one a month, okay, how much time can I do this? And I will be painting and interviewing and finding people through December. And then hopefully it will all be completed next January. Then I guess the natural follow-up question is how do I find people? Well, I started to say, I just started asking around. I started with people that I knew and saw and deal with, and I started asking around. And I went to churches because, you know, the churches are the sanctuaries in a lot of cases. And so I made contact with the New York Immigrant Co Coalition. I went to down to Trinity Church, Wall Street, when it had a, they had a wonderful uh, program on uh, immigration. There was a woman there and she says, oh, I know somebody. And so I have a Haitian refugee, wonderful man. His family was exiled because it was a coup d'etat. And all of a sudden they were told they had to leave the country. Why? Because his mother worked for the Roman Catholic diocese in Haiti. She had nothing to do with politics. But at that time, the person who was in charge, uh, Jean-Paul Aristide, who was thrown out by the military, had been a priest. And so the military said, anybody who has anything to do with the church is no good. And so that was it. And they had, again, as I said, nothing to do with politics, but they wound up here in New York. He had just graduated from high school down there from a good Catholic school and spoke no English, only French, arrives in New York. But happily, he's a good soccer player and his, he was excellent in math and science. So he winds up getting a scholarship to a Catholic college, St. John's University here. And he said it was a little rough with the language, but he's played good soccer and the math and science he could understand. And then finally he could take the other courses when his English improved. He is now, now has a master's degree. He teaches in, the New York, in a New York City junior high school. That's a tough age, as you know. And he teaches math and he wears a suit and a tie every day. And he's just very impressive, I'm sure, to the young boys because so many of them don't know their fathers and he's, he's there in Brooklyn, and he's just being a wonderful teacher. He started an organization called Life of Hope that is a, a help resettlement for the immigrants in the Brooklyn, central Brooklyn, and many of whom are Haitians. So they learn job skills. They learn English as a second language. Some uh, learn computer skills. Some learn leadership skills. And they offer counseling, family counseling, counseling in how to deal with living here, uh, legal counseling as well. It all provides a wonderful big community. And his entire family is involved in it. By the way, they arrived here before 9-11. And he has a brother, an older brother, who after 9-11 went and joined the Marines because he wanted to help his country that had been attacked. And his a big officer in the Marines to this day. These are the kinds of people who are grateful for the opportunities that they have been given and give back and help communities. I'm just so impressed with the immigrants that I have met 
and that I am painting that, you know, I couldn't be more happy to, to tell their stories. I, the other thing I have to tell you is that my own family background, I am the child of a racist. My father was so proud of being a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He was a descendant of Quakers who some came over from with William Penn. So my family and my mother's side, she's a descendant of John Hart. We've been around a long time. My father thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world, but unfortunately he wasn't terribly responsible. My mother told this story very well and my mother divorced him when I was three because he was terribly irresponsible with money. He apparently liked to play cards at the club more than go to work. And he apparently got into high stakes poker games and wasn't very good at it. So when he came home and told her that, uh, you know, he gave her $2 to feed a family of four for a week. Uh, in 1947, that didn't even do it. So she put a coat on me. I was three at the time and we went down to the local bank branch and she went in with her passbook savings account to hands it to the teller and says, well, I, I need to take a little bit of money out of my savings this week because, um, you know, we have to, I have to use it. And the teller came back with a very sad face and said, oh, Mrs. Jones, Mr. Jones took that money out months ago. That used to be allowed. My father, who did this, who um, he would foul mouth every group that ever was. He had used the N-word. He had names for every group. Nobody was any good. And my mother always said, you know, the people who work hard and get a good education and do things wisely don't need to denigrate anybody else because they're not threatened by them. Everybody can enjoy the rising of the boat in the water because everyone is sharing and taking part. It's when somebody isn't doing well themselves and all they've got is this fierce background that they can fall back on. That was where the racism came out, that tribal quality. And I didn't like that. I saw that. I heard it. I would go home from visiting my father and say to my mother, oh, this is what daddy said. She don't ever let me hear you talk like that. That's, that's not appropriate. I learned that it was wrong. I didn't like it. And so in a, in, a, in a sort of way, I'm trying to set the record straight, doing a little bit of what I can. I, I never thought I would see the kind of bad-mouthing and denigration come back. I look at the president and say, that's my father. That's the way was but that was a long time ago i'm i'm going to be 70 we're talking about the early 1950s and and the late 40s act it was the world was a different place i like to think we've come a long way we had the civil rights movement we've had the women's movement there has been the gay rights movement i actually covered some of this as a reporter and i thought the country was being kinder and gentler and more understanding of all people and more willing to accept the contributions and the talents and the abilities of all people. That's, again, that's what I hear in church. When I go to St. Thomas Church, that's what I hear. And so I'm just trying to do my part. Yeah, one of the things that we really talk about at, at Episcopal Migration Ministries is the importance of sharing stories, telling stories, and how important they are. And I think your work is really important, and I think people are going to get a lot out of it. And I'm curious for our listeners who might want to post your exhibition at their church or organization or an event, the best way to go about making that happen? Best way to, is to contact me by email. So Betsy at B-E-T-S-Y, just one E, B-E-T-S-Y at AshtonPortraits.com. 
will work. I will be very happy to hear from people who uh, have organizations that would love to host the exhibit or that know donors that would like to provide whatever. I would be most, most grateful. Wonderful. Will you tell us again the, um, the fiscal sponsor where people can see your exhibit? Yeah. The fiscal sponsor with the page, it's www.fracturedatlas, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-D-A-T-L-A-S, Org. Thank you so much for being with us today. And it's wonderful to hear how you heard God calling you and moving you into this work because we hope for all of our listeners and all of our friends and supporters, we are all moved to take greater action to welcome our new neighbors. So thank you for what you're doing. And listeners, be sure to check out our blog where you can learn more about Betsy's work um, and this exhibit that she's putting together. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you very much. I was honored to be with you. Yes, thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us this week. Remember, World Refugee Day is coming up on June 20th. This is an important day to celebrate the strength, resilience, and contributions of refugees to communities all over the world, and for all of us here in the U.S. to deepen our commitment to the work of welcome and refugee resettlement. This year, we're putting out a number of resources, and you can find them on EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash World Refugee Day. That page is live, and we hope you'll check it out. Absolutely. And listeners, we invite you to prayerfully support Episcopal Migration Ministries with a donation. No gift is too small, and all are put to use to welcome our newest neighbors. Visit EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org forward slash give or text hometown to 91999 and make your gift today. Our theme song was composed and recorded by Abraham Mwenda Ikondo. Find his music at abrahammwendamusic.com. Tune in next week and tell your friends about the Hometown Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we are EMM Refugees. Until next week, peace be with you and all those you consider home.